hello, good evening, everybody. Welcome to Artist Space Books and Talks. Thank you all for coming. Just trying to stay out the light. Um, so, as those of you who regularly attend programs at Artist Space may know, over the last couple of years, we've organized a strand of irregular talks that particularly look towards the work of uh, curator and art historian colleagues who are particularly focused on research into historical intersections between culture and radical politics. Uh, we've had some very insightful presentations, including Rebecca Gordon Nesbitt on Cuban post-revolution cultural policy and Linda Morris on Picasso's transnational engagement with political struggles and the counter-influence of the CIA in funding cultural front organizations during the Cold War. So continuing in this vein, we're very pleased to welcome tonight the Beirut-based writers and curators, Christine Curry and Rasha Salty, to present their research and exhibition project, Past Disquiet, Narratives and Ghosts from the International Art Exhibition for Palestine, 1978. This project culminated in an exhibition that took place at MACBA in Barcelona earlier this year, uh, which drew from Christine and Rasha's long-term study of the International Art Exhibition in Solidarity with Palestine, an, an itinerant exhibition inaugurated in Beirut in 1978 by the Palestine Liberation Organization. Comprised of works donated by over 200 artists, this exhibition was intended to, to tour until it could repatriate to Palestine. In 1982, however, the collection and documentation of its exhibitions were destroyed in the Israeli siege of Beirut. Christine and Rasha's work has therefore been one of uncovering outstanding traces of the exhibition through private archives and oral testimony. Past Disquiet attempted to construct a speculative history of the PLO initiative and equivalent practices in the 1970s touching on the problematics of oral history, the trappings of memory, and of writing history in the absence of cogent archives. Their presentation this evening will discuss the history of the International Art Exhibition of Palestine, and also their methodologies taken in approaching the subject. So to provide some uh, brief bi biographical introduction to Christine and Rasha, Christine Curry is an independent researcher and writer whose interests focus on the history of art circulation and infrastructure in the Arab world. She curated the founding years, 1969 to 1973, a selection of works from the Sultan Gallery archives at the Sultan Gallery in Kuwait in 2012. Uh, Rasha Salty is a writer, researcher, curator, and an international programmer for the Toronto Film International Film Festival. And together, uh, Rasha and Christine are co-founders of the History of Arab Modernities in the Visual Arts Study Group a research platform focused around the social history of art in the Arab world. Uh, and finally, I also wanted to take a moment to thank the Arab Fund for Arts and Culture for supporting this presentation as part of the AFAC Cultural Week in New York. So without further ado, I'll hand over to Christine and Rasha. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Richard, and the team at Artist Space. And we are especially indebted to AFAC because this project uh, could have been a small article limited to research in Beirut, Damascus, and uh, Jordan, uh, Amman, if we had not received the grant that enabled us to travel really across the world. Um, so they're not here yet, but they should be here <laughs> soon. Um, 
So, um, as Richard said, um, Christine and I decided to collaborate uh, a few years ago. Uh, we are both interested in the way uh, the history of uh, modernity in, in, uh, in Arab arts is written. Um, and we put ourselves like small challenges. And usually we end up with an article or a conference paper. But uh, we fell on the catalog for the International um, uh, Art Exhibition for Palestine a few years back. And we were really intrigued. And we decided to uh, try to excavate the story of that exhibition. And uh, it took us five years. Um, and, <laughs> and a lot of traveling. And um, because it was an exhibition of which uh, the traces, the documentary and archival traces were lost, it was a lot of recording oral history, it was a lot of, it was people's testimonies, people's personal archives, so it was practically impossible to fact check. And uh, our methodology is extremely suspect, and so now we say we have a speculative version of of history, uh, but uh, something else happened, uh, which was wonderful, is that we began to see ghosts and f believe that they were leading us and giving us clues. We began to, uh, there were too many coincidences happening uh, for us to ignore uh, the element of coincidence. Um, so today we, um, Today we're going to talk about how we transformed the research into exhibition while talking about the research, uh, because that was a challenge. So basically, uh, two years into the research, we uh, met Bartomeu Marie, who was then the director of the Museum of Contemporary Art in Barcelona. And they had a program called uh, Exhibition Histories, and it was supposed to be a platform for interrogating the writing of history of art. And they also had another program called Decolonizing the Museum. So we fit in, in both these headlines. And he invited us. He, you have a seat here. <laughs> Mrs. Sponsor is here. <laughs> um, they invited us to uh, transform the research into exhibition. And that was a big, uh, that was a, a big question. And, and actually a delightful challenge because we did not have original documents. Everything we found, besides the f we've, we collected hearsay, we collected memories, we also only had the catalog as the original document. Uh, in the beginning we were working with a, f with a Xerox and then we, somebody gave us an original document. So, the, so there were no vitrines, uh, nothing was precious, everything was a facsimile. And that was also something that we had to contend with. Okay, so the International Art Exhibition for Palestine was organized by the PLO, uh, by actually the Plastic Arts Section of the Office of Unified Information. Uh, and the PLO also had a Department of Culture, so this was a bit different. And uh, it was led by, uh, the director of the Plastic Arts Section was a Jordanian artist called Mona Saudi, 
And she, the mandate of that department was to initiate uh, a whole series of exhibitions and events to basically bring Palestine and the struggle of Palestinian people into visibility. In the 70s, it was a big question. Uh, they also invited a lot of artists to produce posters. Uh, and this exhibition comes from the set of these activities. It was, it was certainly not the only thing that they did. We were intrigued because the, the exhibition opened maybe 10 days after a truce had been brokered in South Lebanon uh, between Israel and Lebanon, because Israel had invaded South Lebanon and the UN uh, peacekeeping forces had deployed. Uh, we couldn't imagine how they could have shipped 200 works by almost 200 artists from 30 different countries under these circumstances. We couldn't believe that Yasser Arafat attended the exhibition considering the security risk. So we, in trying to excavate the story, we knew that we only had the catalog and that was our guide and we knew that there were important pages in that catalog that were going to guide us and become our reference. Um, and uh, these pages were the acknowledgements page where people are, and institutions are thanked, listed, and then the, the participating, participating artist page. Um, and you'll see those in a bit. Yeah, we're not gonna see. deprive you too long. Okay, so uh, we, this is the dog and pony show, so we like, yeah, alternate. So this, um, sorry about the disjuncted images, but these are, this is just from outside the Past is Quiet, the exhibition that we organized in the MACBA, at the MACBA. Um, just to kind of get back to that so you understand sort of what we're trying to do there. Um, sorry, I'm not letting you read that, but we uh, sort of covered that. Uh, this was a pamphlet that was given um, at the exhibition to kind of lead people through, and we'll show you kind of where it came from. And, yeah, so that, that was the beginning sketch, which if you go back just a minute. So basically, uh, we had this one room, one space, and just be, because we were guided by uh, ghosts uh, in order to organize the exhibition, the information, the million stories that we had collected, to organize them into an exhibition format, we decided to take verses from uh, Mahmoud Darwish in the presence of absence. And these are the texts that you find in gray. So we use the poem as a guide. So just kind of getting back and um, the process of trying to figure out how to transform thousands and thousands of pages of material. Um, okay, maybe not that many, but a lot of material and hours of footage um, into a way for people to understand not only the exhibition of 1978, but rather everything that comes out of it, behind it, and um, out of it afterwards. This is just a hand drawing of our um, changes and uh, the process of trying to put together this, uh, this exhibition at the MACBA. I'm gonna take you through just some of the primary documents from the exhibition from 1978 uh, so you have a sense of the aesthetic, um, what, what kind of, what they were trying to do. So here we have two posters, um, one on the, that were produced for the exhibition. The one on the left was produced by Dia Al-Azawi, an Iraqi artist. The one on the right by Mohamed Malihi, a Moroccan artist. These are scans of posters. 
Um, there's a bit of water damage there, so you can see that it's not in great shape, but here it's, all the artists are listed by name. And to give you a sense of the challenges um, in the country. catalog, yeah, sorry, they're listed by country. Um, there are names there that were not in the exhibition catalog, for example. So how do we deal with you know, documents maybe not necessarily telling us all the information. Um, these are, that's just one example of kind of how we had to deal with um, this, the process of this research that in a way it was, it, it had to be speculative because perhaps there were names, even more names that were not on that poster nor in the catalog that participated in the exhibition. Um, this is the invitation, it's folded in half. Um, this is it open. The work on the left is by Mohamed Shaba, a Moroccan artist. It was in the exhibition. And you can see the number of languages that the name of the exhibition was written in, as you saw in the poster before. This is the inside. So it took place at the Beirut Arab University in Beirut, which is an important location um, because it was not at the Sursut Museum, right? It was not at kind of what is imagined to be contemporary art space. It was in a big hall. They needed a lot of space. And uh, this university held a lot of events, um, uh, various events around um, the PLO, basically. There were a lot of speeches that happened there. It was in the neighborhood where the PLO's offices were centralized. Yeah, so they felt safe in that area and that they controlled it. And this is a, a great image of um, two artists painting the banner for the exhibition. And we're just gonna take you through a few images of the exhibition catalog because as Rasha said for us, it was the, the map for us to do research to understand who was a part of this. Um, and still to this day is the reference that we go back to even though we've gathered quite a bit of material. So this is the cover, it's a bilingual catalog. I'm starting with the English side. Here, um, the work on the cover is by Julio Leparc, Argentinian artist who is based in Paris, still is based there. So the dates are, it says that it was essentially two weeks long. It was actually extended for about a month from what we found out from interviews with people. So basically this, this uh, citation from Yasser Arafat gives a sense of the mindset of the international anti-imperialist uh, movement, uh, solidarity movement all over the world. Okay, and this is Ennio Calabria, an Italian artist, uh, very closely associated with the Communist Party in Italy. He's probably one of the most visible, um, and he just voluntarily just sent this letter, this word, yeah. So this is the, the, one of the key pages for us. This is the acknowledgements page, as we call it, um, the thanks for the people who did work to make this exhibition happen. So um, there are various names that we're going to cover, um, which we'll talk about later. Um, and um, so, some, so some of the people, so you have a sense, there's, uh, there are gallerists, uh, there are ministries of culture, uh, there's uh, one figure at the very end, Azadine Al Kalak, who is the representative at the PLO office in Paris, who we later found out played a very central role in making this exhibition happen. Um, other individual artists who are based in different countries, and uh, Claude Lazare, who I'll speak about uh, very soon because he ended up being a very central figure for us in the process of doing the research because he had a, quite an amazing archive related to this exhibition. 
So I'm gonna take you through, and I'm sorry, you probably won't have time to read everything. So this was a text written by Mona Saudi, the, one of the main organizers of the exhibition, um, talking about their intention, uh, what their kind of goals were with the project. I'm gonna give you a little bit of time to skim through it, but if we wanna get through as much as we want, I'm gonna have to move on. All right, and that's the second half. You want me to go back? You want to go back? Just take a picture. <laughs> you know you it's want to. It's not a to. great text. It's pretty strongly worded. Sorry, gotta we gotta keep moving. We can share it with you later. Just so basically, I mean, what's what stood out for us is that the last paragraph she says, "Museum of Solidarity with Palestine," and that's when exactly. we understood that the intention behind this exhibition was to build a museum. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and so that wouldn't have been apparent to anyone uh, when you see the title of the exhibition. Um, and so, so that's what intrigued us. That was one of, the, one of the main points that really intrigued us to understand what this was, had it survived, did it tour, what, you know, kind of what were the intents of, um, of this exhibition. Here's a really poorly translated text by Roberto yes. Mata, which yes. is so bad you should not even read it. Um, no, really, because it was sent, uh, he wrote it in Spanish, it was translated to probably, French, probably to and French, then Arabic, Arabic, and then English. Yeah. So it's like, it's another text. One day we'll find the original, if someone wants to help us. So, just to take you through, there were some letters by um, different organizations, artist groups, um, in kind of expressing their support for the Palestinian struggle, for this project. Um, here we have uh, the, ja the Japanese, which I will feature later on in, this in the talk because it's one of my favorite stories. Here we have a couple of more. And here are the artists, um, just to give you a sense of kind of the, the range of artists. Their names spelled incorrectly, don't mind them. Um, we apologize on behalf of making a catalog in the middle of a war, you know, it's a lot of work. So you have a sense of kind of the number of artists. So the, there is one more page which I'll show you, but the highest number of participating artists were from France, Italy, Poland, and Japan. So that also was one of the, you know, the, that drove our research. Why those countries? Why were there so many artists from those particular countries? And who were they? What were their links to this initiative, to the Palestinian cause? And this is the second page. Jose Gamara is not from America. He's from Uruguay. You know, some little... There, yeah. But there was uh, an artist named John Randall who was from the U.S. So little discrepancies. And, you know, it's pretty amazing that they were able to produce a catalog of this size at, at that moment. So we have to give them that. Um, so, but there's some things that, you know, the double checking, the fact checking, this is all just regular part of doing this work. And in the Arabic uh, version, they had more space, oh, yeah. so they could fit the artists from the USSR, but they don't appear in English. Exactly. <laughs> That's suspect a little bit. But it really probably was an issue of page number, you yes. know, like we, you know. So this is the back, or the front of the Arabic side of the catalog. So I'm just gonna show you a couple of images and then you'll get really upset that I stop. So these are some images and I'm gonna tell you a bit about where we got them from. So as Rasha had said, we started with this catalog and um, it had a lot of information, too much information in fact. And uh, you know, we basically started to try to figure out who was still alive and who had passed away and how can we get in contact with those who are around. And as Rasha had mentioned, had we not 
been able to get support to travel to interview people, the research would have stayed kind of nearby in Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan. So we naturally started there. Um, and we got some information, we did some interviews, um, we got some press material, but nothing really substantial. We didn't have really any images of the exhibition besides the tiny ones in three or four newspaper articles. So, um, and I get chills when I say this every single time, but in 2011, um, there was a happenstance meeting between Russia and Fran the French artist Claude Dazar, who was mentioned in the acknowledgements page at an exhibition. And, uh, you know, Russia had remembered his name and had said, oh, you, you were a part of this exhibition in Beirut in 1978. And he said, yeah, and I was, I was there for it. I came to Beirut for the exhibition. Mind was blown, of course, and uh, he said, "You know, whenever you're in Paris, we'd, I'd love to talk to you. I, you know, I have some stuff I can share with you." So, fast forward to 2011. I think that was 2008. Uh, Russia and I were able to go. Um, we went to his atelier in Montmartre in Paris, and we entered the door. And he said, "I've been waiting for you for 30 years." And I know I'm getting the chills. I get mm -hmm. it every single time. Yeah, he had three boxes: photographs newspaper clippings and papers. And the papers were Xeroxes, they mm -hmm. were not original papers. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he'd kept this stuff, this material, press articles, tons of press material in Arabic, which he could read a couple of things because he happened to have been born and grew up a little bit in Alexandria. Um, but one of the most important kind of elements were these images, photographs from the exhibition. This is not from the exhibition, but in fact it's from something that came out of it. There was an atelier that took place, uh, an artist workshop, with young artists in Beirut, and uh, they produced works and showed those works on May 15th uh, in the courtyard of the Beirut Arab University. So here we have Claude Lazar on the left, Nasser Soumi, who's a Palestinian artist, and Khalil Akari, a Syrian artist. So basically, the, now we're going through the photo archive, or the photos that uh, Claude gave us. This is from the opening, exhibition opening. Uh, the painting is by Gérard Fromanger, and that was, ladies and gentlemen, the Palestinian Revolution. They looked at paintings that said sex shop. <laughs> and the painting is titled Sex is Everywhere. Um, the person, the first man with a cigarette is Azadine Kalak, and he was the PLO representative uh, in France. Next to him, uh, the three men are like the top uh, cadres, the top ranking uh, PLO uh, uh, basically chiefs. Yeah. Um, and so he was giving them a personal tour of this exhibition. And, he, and these photos, like other photos, show that his demeanor is as if he was the organizer. Mm -hmm. That was part of the story that we tried to uncover. Mm -hmm. So the last image, this is of uh, Claude Lazar. Um, he and other artists went to southern Lebanon to meet with fighters. That was part of their trip. So Claude, in fact, and I'll tell you a little, you'll watch a small video very soon, but he had come to Beirut for the exhibition and stayed not for a week, in fact, for three months. And he stayed in Lebanon. Uh, there were a few other artists, a couple of Italian artists, a few Moroccan artists, but Claude stayed the longest. And uh, what they did was they, he and others want to witness the revolution. They want to witness the struggle, meet with fighters, understand what was going on on the ground. And so he tells the story um, of going with catalogs of the exhibition to southern Lebanon to meet with fighters to talk about it. Yeah. To talk about like how art can represent the revolution. And he remembers it as like the most significant event um, probably of his time. And Tofi Abdelal. Yeah, so this guy uh, the, on, 
I know if it's all the way on the right. Or, yeah, um, is an artist, is a sculptor, mm -hmm. a Palestinian sculptor. Interestingly, he used to be a wrestler as well. So, so this is when you kind of come back to the acknowledgments page and you, you know, ask the question, well, who, how significant were these names? We probably glossed over Claude Lazare. We didn't know his name compared to um, Diat Lazawi or, uh, you know, other figures. So it just kind of comes back to the, um, to our methodology of having had thought one thing and in fact, you know, something else being the case. Yeah, but basically each name we decided was going to be an investigation. Exactly. Like we we're gonna follow until the end to find the connections between all these people. And I, we, uh, we, uh, we have done only the third. We mm -hmm. have not been able to complete mm -hmm. the research. So I'm um, kind of coming back to how this project, how this exhibition um, and initiative to build a museum for Palestine happened. There were different versions of the story, of course. Um, I uh, was lucky to be able to meet with Mona Saudi, kind of the named one of the, the organizer of the exhibition in Beirut. Um, she talked about kind of what her work was there within the PLO, her connections in France and other places, having traveled to different cities to meet with people to get work for this exhibition. Um, but I knew that there was more, and you know, there's always there, it doesn't take it takes more than one person to produce an exhibition of this scale. Um, and so we, when we had met Claude, we were able to get another version of the story. Um, so I'm just gonna play um, a very short clip. So as Rasha had mentioned in the exhibition, Past is Quiet, uh, it really was facsimiles of documents, um, wall texts, and videos. So we actually um, produced, we call them documents as well. They're videos that we had um, edited with an editor to tell different stories about uh, the exhibition in 78 and these other subjects that we we're interested in discussing. So this is an excerpt from a video uh, of memories of the exhibition and the making of the exhibition. So it's a very short clip uh, where Claude Lazare is speaking. Oui, ça c'était pendant l'accrochage where les œuvres sont au sol. Et donc après, comment vous euh, vous, vous rappelez de comment l'idée de l'expo est venue et comment elle s'est développée et comment l'expo à Beyrouth en 78. Vous avez voyagé à Beyrouth. Oui, j'ai été. Ah oui, alors là, quand on revient à la question de Beyrouth, là, c'est un peu plus long. Et euh, donc, on avait depuis euh, longtemps parlé, parce qu'on se venait très souvent le, le week-end chez moi, parce qu'il changeait d'adresse toutes les nuits, tous les soirs, tous les temps, on avait discuté. Et euh, moi, ça me tenait à cœur de faire un musée pour l'art contemporain, pour la Palestine. Parce que je savais que, vu ce que je disais tout à l'heure sur cette adhésion des, 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 des artistes, en, en l'occurrence, Sur cette question-là, on n'aurait pas de mal de regrouper des œuvres pour faire un musée d'art contemporain. Donc je lui parlais, il faudrait qu'on trouve un lieu, un endroit. Et j'ai parlé aussi du musée en exil Salvatore Allende, qui est actuellement à Valparaiso, où des artistes avaient donné en 73 des, des œuvres pour le musée en exil Salvatore Allende. Donc j'ai d'ailleurs une œuvre. Euh, sur la question palestinienne qui a ce musée. Et donc, euh, bon, j'avais donné cette, cette, cette toile pour le musée Salvatore Allende. Donc, je parlais de, de ce musée, je trouve ça très intéressant de faire un musée en exil et de, de l'installer dans la Palestine libérée, libre et démocratique euh, d'un futur très proche. Et, et euh, 
un jour, bon, c'est resté comme ça en suspens. Un jour, il dit, écoute, il y a des gens qui, à Beyrouth, ont décidé de faire une exposition internationale pour la Palestine. Alors là, je ne sais pas si c'est lui qui a impulsé l'idée en, en leur disant il faut faire quelque chose ou ça vient de là-bas. Il, il a dit il faut prendre en charge le regroupement de tableaux pour une exposition internationale pour la Palestine. Et il y avait Mona Saoudi aussi qui venait de Beyrouth, qui avait contacté des artistes qu'elle connaissait, que moi je ne connaissais pas, comme Marfin, etc., Matin, et pour amener des œuvres. Moi je me suis occupé des artistes, une partie des artistes de la jeune peinture. So, I don't know if it was clear, but so um, Claude Lazar speaking about Ezzedine Kalak, who is um, a long time, or a, a friend of his that um, he had met at an exhibition of the Salon de la Jeune Peinture in 1974. Um, and so they had a, a very uh, strong relationship in the arts and, uh, and they, he, he speaks for quite a bit of time and I wish we had more time to talk about the relationship, but um, This is kind of the, this is the person he's speaking about when he references uh, he. So, so this is kind of one version of the genesis. Um, another version of the story uh, comes from a Palestinian artist, Samir Seleme, who was a part of this crew as well and had said that he had gone to meet with the people who were involved in the International Resistance Museum for Salvador Allende. So you have different individuals in different places that kind of come together uh, conveniently to make a project like this possible. But it, I mean, ultimately, this is what it seems. It seems like uh, we, this is what we understood. We understood that um, militants on the extreme left, Maoist, uh, whatever, different colors of, of reds, but extreme reds, were uh, dis decided to engage with artists and to use uh, and or to mobilize artists to Uh, engage with a cause or bring art into a cause in a completely different way. And, you know, it, they created a, a world separate from the market, totally autonomous, uh, that involved exhibitions, that involved uh, biennials, salons, that involved museums in exile. And the notion of a museum in exile we'll expand on later, but basically is an itinerant exhibition. Okay. So uh, when we looked at, when you look at the acknowledgements page, there's another way to break it down. And we broke it down, I mean, this is what we saw. We saw PLO representatives, we saw art galleries, and we saw some institutions, and we saw artists. And the whole point of the research was for a few years to try to figure out the connections. I mean, this is a video that we made uh, and presented in the exhibition to explain uh, how names and institutions and eventually events are connected. Uh, just to give you a sense of uh, the background. So Claude Lazar, so post uh, May 68, the Maoist became predominant in the left, and a lot of them were artists, and the Jeune Peinture, which was an anti-establishment salon uh, or run by artists since uh, the end of World War II, became 
overcome by these leftist artists. They, I mean, after 68, they decided not to invite individual artists, only collectives. And uh, sometimes the salon had themes like po uh, police and culture or uh, the struggle um, or the opposition to the war in Vietnam, to the invasion of Vietnam. Um, what we are, so what surfaced from our research is collectives of artists organizing events and eventually connecting between each other or artist associations and artist unions organizing biennials and also connecting, creating connections. And uh, with under a big umbrella called the solidarity, anti-imperialist solidarity. Uh, in this, uh, today, we will talk just about two cases. But basically, so, but basically we, we studied uh, artist unions in the Arab world, in Morocco, in Iraq, in Palestine, for Palestine uh, and Syria. Uh, we studied uh, collectives of artists in Italy and in France, and we studied uh, the, uh, ah, you can say the name, the Japan Afro-Asian Latin American Artist Association, JALA. It's the best association I've ever seen. You'll have to stop me from talking about it, so. Yeah, I, uh, I'll be here, police and culture. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, so basically, I mean, this, uh, the, the other thing that I want to mention is this, that almost everybody that we met started by saying, I don't remember, or by saying, oh, I'm not so sure. So we couldn't really fact check. And we realized that with the Palestinians, or mostly with the Arabs, uh, we, we understood to, to the extent to which uh, memory uh, was affective, was emotional. Uh, there's a, we will not name names, but there's a woman uh, who basically uh, felt slighted, felt like she was not part of the internal uh, organization of this event. And uh, Christine interviewed her. And she said, you know, when I first met with her, she said, I was not there. I did not go to that exhibition. Look at the invitation. It says personal invitation. I never received one. And then I showed her an image of her hanging artwork, her installing yeah. artwork at the exhibition. Standing on a ladder, installing artwork. So, and again, I think this is, you know, these and are. Then, so she said, oh, maybe we helped a little bit, but we were not invited to the dinner. And then and she had was a at photo the dinner. Of her at the dinner. <laughs> Many photos, having a lot of fun. But so that said, I mean, these are the challenges yeah. that we're dealing with. People who, are, you know, have, have grudges, have traumas that they're, you know, remembering or misremembering things through. And it's, it's been many years since this exhibition as well, so this is not to say we're faulting anyone, but these are considerations in how to write this history and to give space for these memories, um, lack yeah. of memory. At the same time, there are people who feel that this history should be written mm -hmm. and who have been so incredibly generous Absolutely. in giving us their time, in opening their archives. And we realized that, uh, I mean, and this will come back at the end, but we were being trusted with private lives, with private memories. And that gives a sense of responsibility that's a very, um, that's, you know, makes it, you become extremely cautious in how you exhibit those stories or make them public. Okay, let's go to Japan. So we're gonna tell sort of two, elaborate on two different stories. There are many, many more within the exhibition, so we apologize that we can only tell two stories. Um, the first starts with the film. 
it works. Where is it? Right, uh, right there. Mm It's a bit of a tangent, but it's worth it. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of telling the story backwards. So the woman, um, the very beautiful woman of interest in, uh, in that clip is a woman named Shirley Yamaguchi, or Yoshiko Yamaguchi. Uh, she was a Chinese-born Japanese actress and singer, um, and later in her life she became a reporter and eventually was the host of a very important show um, in Japan called uh, The Three O'Clock. There she reported on Palestine and on Vietnam on the Vietnam War. Um, soon after that, she was elected as a member of the Japanese parliament. This was in the early 70s. And she served in the parliament for 18 years. Again, you're wondering why I'm talking about her. Um, I'll tell you why. She visited Lebanon in the early 70s. Um, she was visiting Fusaku Shigenobu. Fusaku Shigenobu was the head of the Japan Red Army, which was a militant group fighting with the PFLP in the early 70s and the PLO. And she, in fact, was the woman to have first interviewed Fusaku Shigenobu. I'm not going to show you the whole interview. I'm just going to show you the ridiculous beginning. It's it happened in 1973. All right, so sorry that you don't get to watch more. So um, the, the Japan Red Army doesn't um, directly have a, a relationship to the story of our project, but it is actually quite a strong force in the background, in particular Fusaku Shigenobu. Um, uh, the, they were an, uh, an active militant group fighting with the PLO in Lebanon uh, from the early 70s until, and, and, and various Japanese had lived in Lebanon hiding out for many years. Um, the daughter of Fusaku Shigenobu, Mei Shigenobu, may be a familiar name. Uh, Eric Baudelaire, French filmmaker, did a project around uh, Masao Adachi, the filmmaker Fusaku and Mei Shigenobu, um, which is a great project to look into. Um, but but I, I, I say this because there are different people who played a really strong role in Japan, bringing Palestine to Japan in different ways. So whether it was reporting um, on the militant fighting group or uh, different individuals that were part of a, a, a non-militant solidarity network. So th this is just some information. Um, there are various 
solidarity committees that existed in Japan, um, particularly in the mid to late 70s. And there are various kind of figures that played a strong role in in supporting the Japanese, uh, the, the Palestinian struggle in Japan. So again, why am I talking about this? One of the highest number of Japanese artists, in, uh, of artists in the J exhibition were Japanese, and we wondered why, and kind of what the context was behind that. So as we had learned, the PLO had opened an office in Tokyo in 1977, and the head of the office, Fatih Abdul Hamid, was a charming, intelligent, very well-respected individual in Tokyo that drew many people to, uh, to support uh, and work within this office, volunteer in the office, um, and produce uh, publications, which I'll tell you about. So in fact, kind of a the, the, going back to the exhibition in Beirut, the idea was that this was a, a, an itinerant exhibition that would travel the world. It was a collection that would travel the world to show the world um, about you know, the, those individuals who supported the Palestinian struggle. And so the first place that this collection traveled to was Tokyo. In July of 1978, just a few months after the exhibition in Beirut, 100 artworks were shipped from Beirut, from the PLO office, to Tokyo. So this is um, a page from a, a book talking about this artist organization kind of behind that work. In the center, we have Fatih Abdul Hamid, um, you know, cutting the ribbon, as is you know, very important in Arab culture. Um, and Ichiro Haryu, who is a very important radical art critic in Japan, to the right, and then there's a member of the Arab League on the left. Um, I'm just going to show you some documentation, um, but because as we we only recently had the chance to sort of look into what this history was, what the relationship was between the Palestinian cause and Japan, and how deep and how far it went in the arts and kind of within the politics of it. So um, this is a letter from uh, kind of a message by Ichiro Haryu many years later. Um, still kind of very active. He was known as Uncle Palestine in Japan. Um, he was an amazing individual. Uh, several films have been made about him. I'm just gonna take you through the catalog for the exhibition that took place in Tokyo just a few months after the exhibition in Beirut. Um, it's pretty amazing because it very much is a translation or the opposite of the exhibition catalog in Beirut. There's the Mata text translated into Japanese. There's a text from Mona thanking, Mona Saudi thanking the, the Japanese individuals for their support for Palestine. So, and, and what we learn here again to kind of come back to the, the um, problematics of documents and trying to gather information. Um, we see many of the same works from the exhibition in Beirut, but we find new works here. So we understand that more works were added to the collection after the exhibition in Beirut, including the Sleiman Mansour work, the Vassarelli works, another Melihi. So this was actually the first exhibition that the organization that hosted it had done. So. The PLO office played a strong role in making this exhibition possible, but it was really the Japan Afro-Asian Latin American Artists Association that had hosted it. Um, they worked very closely with um, the PLO office. Here are names of the artists. The exhibition was also included more Japanese artists' work. And here are some images from the exhibition. So 
So this organization was established um, in 1977 as well, the same year that the PLO office was established. And uh, they were um, established to initiate artistic exchange and solidarity with the third world. And they were modeled after the Japan Afro-Asian Writers Association, um, which, was, which Ichiro Haryu was also involved in. Um, they hosted this exhibition at the Tokyo Metropolitan Museum, and a lot of the projects and kind of the, the programming that this organization did were symposium um, exhibitions um, and different kind of rallies and events. So they were very. It was it was an anti-establishment artist group. Um, they did work around Palestine throughout their time. They still exist today. They still still do exhibitions of around Palestinian art. They've invited um, every other year Palestinian artists to show work there. They've done work around Vietnam, um, pa uh, Korea, and Thailand as well. So you can see kind of the range of their interests. Um, they had a strong relationship to, um, uh, to the PLO office as well, which allowed them to facilitate this work. Um, another kind of note, this is amazing, this is, um, this is about Arafat's visit to Asia, which happened in 1981, the Asia tour. Um, and Arafat visited uh, Tokyo in 1981. And this is significant politically um, because it's the first time that he had visited one of the most important industrialized nations. Uh, many eyes were watching. Uh, the PLO office produced an amazing um, publication. It was a, a magazine called Philistine Biladi. They produced, uh, it was a, a monthly uh, publication. They produced it, I think, for five years. And it was all original writing around Palestine, around um, different political causes by Japanese writers. So they weren't translating uh, you know, PLO publications. They were really doing their own thinking and writing, which is really significant. We don't see this anywhere else. So here are some photos. I don't know if that's Arat, but I think it is. They're drinking. I could go on about the political history, but I'm not gonna go into it. So these are just some examples of the, of the magazine. Um, people uh, subscribed to the magazine. It was not kind of offered freely. So it's also quite interesting. So to add kind of the work of JALA, this organization, the PLO office, there were solidarity groups um, that organized different exhibitions and events. Uh, there was a, a very important photojournalist named uh, Rishio Hirokawa, who was one of the first photojournalists into Sabra and Shatila. Uh, they kind of, he was contributor to this publication and played a really strong role in within Tokyo and bringing together different groups. He was a founder of one of the solidarity committees. So this is an example of a publication or a, an exhibition that they held um, commemorating um, Sabra and Shatila. This is back, this is Philistine Biladi, and this is, just had to share this. So they would teach people Arabic in Philistine Biladi. So these are teaching, you know, Japanese individuals Arabic words. So it really was not, um, it was a really diverse publication. They translated Hassan Kanafani. A lot of uh, Arabists and historians kind of got their start with this publication. Uh, and there's one individual who's kind of behind all of this named Yuzo Itagaki, who was one of the first Arabists in Japan. And he was very involved in um, different parts of, um, of supporting the work that the PLO office was doing and uh, being a public figure on news stations, on NHK, uh, in newspapers talking about the Palestinian struggle. And um, here we'll end with a, an exhibition that was held of posters, uh, 
collaboration between the PLO office and JALA. I can go on for hours, but just to give you a taste of kind of what these networks are, that this network is artists, um, but it was also many other individuals who supported the Palestinian cause in Japan. And so now we're going to move to Italy. Uh, so this is a Super 8 uh, film uh, that we digitized that we collected from an artist called Sergio Tracuani. And Sergio is, uh, lives in Tuscany in a small town called San Giovanni. And he was part, uh, in the 70s, he was part of a collective called Archicoda. And, okay, so, you know, interestingly, not all the Archicoda are listed as, uh, are listed to have participated in the exhibition. So Italy was for us, uh, like, you know, we looked at the countries from which uh, we had the biggest participation. France, Claude Jean Peinture became easy to research, and we speak French, so that was fine. Japan, Japan was a big mystery until uh, we met Mei Shigenobu, and then, uh, Italy was also uh, very, very closed for us because the Italians have stopped translating a lot of stuff and uh, everything is in Italian. But also the list of artists, like we contacted famous curators and art historians and we ran the list by them and they were like, oh, these people were so unimportant, they're bad artists, they're, like why are you interested in them? And it turns out that actually uh, there were, I mean, there's a couple who were very famous, Carla Cardi, uh, uh, what's his name? Yeah, Ennio Calabria. Keep, yeah, Ennio Calabria. But most of them were unknown. And, and we thought, we uh, decided to go to Italy and we actually found them. They're alive and they're still very radical. These are artists that basically, and it, it's an interesting situation, they're outside the canon. Like the, the two big art historians slash curators decided they were unimportant. So they're still alive, prolific, making work, teaching, uh, but nobody pays attention to them. And they're so, not a part of the market. They're absolutely not part of the market. And they're, they're, they're very funny. They have maintained a fantastic sense of humor, no absolutely. bitterness whatsoever. Um, and uh, so we learned that actually like, and this is how the elements fall into place. Uh, that uh, within the Jeune Peinture, there was a collective of artists called Collective Palestine. And these guys made a big painting, six meters long, that the PLO activists would take around when they lectured and tried to um, you know, organize political rallies around Palestine. The Italians uh, collective sees that. And they, uh, co they come into contact and they decide to organize an event around the Venice Biennial in 1976. And the description is, so basically the Super 8 is supposed to be I'll about show one you of images those. Yeah, so, you so can the see photos them. are better. Uh, but basically what they did was take the face of a screaming child and uh, make it like a, a stencil and paint it on uh, the street. Uh, like a, so it was like a participatory art event or political event uh, involving uh, artwork. Uh, they did that in Mestre, 
And they did that with the support of unions and schools. I mean, the, the, the way they recall the event is, it sounds like a Sergei Eisenstein scene. Uh, the factories shut down an hour early. The workers worked in a straight line to Mestre. Everybody was organized. And we all know Italy, right? So everybody was organized and... Um, and they'd done it in Tuscany before exactly. and after Mestre as well. And they did it in, in several towns, small towns in, in Tuscany. Uh, they were, there were, um, in the list of Italian artists, there were other artists who are listed. So these are the photographs. Uh, there are other artists who are listed, and they were part of collectives in Rome. And they, uh, they, had, a, they had their own space right next to the Pantheon. Uh, real estate was different then. And we found out that these uh, artists actually participated in the uh, Italian pavilion uh, in the biennial of 70s, in the Venice biennial of 1976, but only uh, document with documentation, no artworks. And they had a very strong uh, engagement with housing issues in Rome. At that time, uh, housing issues were like a real tragedy. And, and from that, they also uh, became involved, they were involved with the struggle against the invasion of Vietnam, uh, against the dictatorship of Pinochet, and Palestine became an, a, like a natural continuation of their engagement with the world. Uh, and and from the story of the Italians, we began to see how non-Arab artists became mobilized and sort of fell into uh, uh, not a ramshackle, but a, not a totally organized network, sorry, network that did things. Uh, for them, Chile, uh, Vietnam, South Africa were the same causes. Um, and when the question came to don, and they were actually all around the Italian Communist Party, and they all participated in the UNITA festival. So that was also like a good resource for us. Um, but uh, so this is the story of the artist network. Another big item that we researched was this idea of a museum in exile. And you know, it came up in the interviews that the Palestinians decided to do a museum of their own after they heard the story of the uh, Salvador Allende initiative. Uh, let me take a second to explain Yes, yeah, so this image is from the Salon de la Jeune Peinture in Paris. So we're talking mostly about Italy, but this is the group that they were working with. This is the Palestine Room, as they called it. I think it was in the 77 edition. You can see that actually one of the work, two of the works, uh, Jose Malwani and Samir Salemi, those works were in the exhibition in Beirut in 1978. So sometimes the links are individuals. Sometimes it's the actual artworks that yeah. you see in one place and end up in yeah. Beirut. So the, the networks that we're building are not random. They're based on these they individuals trace. that were a part of it, but we're trying to trace these objects, uh, specific moments in which people connected. So this is a, a slide from... From, from that exhibition. Yeah. So the museum's in exile. Okay, so museum is in exile. Uh, we uh, made a long, and I think beautiful, uh, video document on the whole story of the Salvador Allende Museum and the Nicaragua Museum and the, San, and the Museum for the Sandinista. However, we will show you just this because it's kind of the prehistory of this idea of a museum in exile. Heartfelt gratitude to the artists who have donated works that will be the basis for the future Museum of Solidarity.
This is, no doubt, a unique event, which begins a new type of relationship between the creator of art and the people. Indeed, Chile's Museum of Solidarity, which later will be housed in the UNCTAD III building, will be the first one where the highest expressions of contemporary painting and sculpture will be brought to the great masses of the people, thanks to the will of the artists themselves. I feel especially touched by this noble form of contributing to the transformation process that Chile has put in motion to affirm her sovereignty, mobilize her resources, and accelerate the material and spiritual development of her people. This is the proper framework for advancing on the road to socialism, which the people have chosen with full awareness of their destiny. There are many mistakes. These sentences excerpted from Chilean President Salvador Allende's address to the artist who responded in a remarkably short time to the invitation to donate work to the museum that was inaugurated in May of 1971 and comprised some 600 artworks. The Museum of Solidarity marked a milestone in museographic history. Okay. So basically, uh, we found out that in 1972, uh, Salvador Allende had won elections and we thought things were going fine. No, but the, the media was controlled by the right-wing parties and, and they were uh, disseminating an image of Chile that was disastrous. So Mario Pedrosa, Brazilian, very important Brazilian art historian, art critic, curator, who basically had fled Brazil from the military junta and loved Salvador Allende, so was in exile in Chile, tells him, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna bring all these intellectuals from all over the world, they're gonna see Chile and they're gonna write about it, and we're going to build a museum in solidarity with this incredible socialist experiment. This is 72, 73, the coup d'etat happens. The building where the coup d'etat happens September 11th. The building where the museum was, the, uh, the army takes it over in November. Uh, you know, they steal some of the paintings, they destroy others, but the point is that everybody goes in exile. Uh, and the artists find themselves in Paris and in elsewhere, in Sweden, in Cuba. And in exile, they decide to mount another collection and another exhibition, uh, another museum. This time, it's a museum in exile. And this collection, uh, it amounted to like more than like 2,000 yeah. works, more than 2,000 works, and it kept touring. It's amazing, and it was managed by artists and art critics. And this, there were committees in six countries that were organizing yeah. this. So again, politicians and artists that were doing it, and it was called the International Resistance Museum for Salvador Allende. So you see the kind of shift yeah. in the name. And basically it toured until uh, the Pinochet dictatorship ended and the works were shipped back to Chile and today it's a great museum in Chile. In the interview with Claude Lazar, he says it's in Valparaiso, it's not, it's in Santiago de Chile. And it's one of the richest and most interesting collections uh, of modern art. Um, so this is the story of the Salvador Allende Museum in Exile experiment. And again, sort of the, what, what's important to us is the overlap. Many of the artists that gave work to the Palestinian Initiative had also given work to the Chilean Initiative. So yeah. we see, we see these, these similarities. Again, like either tracing characters or tracing works or 
unearthing narratives. So kind of continuing with thinking about museographic history, um, the other initiative, um, the second of the third, um, and we're almost done, that I'll speak about is the initiative for Nicaragua. So uh, again, it was similar people who were involved with the Allende initiative. Um, what happened was in 1980 during a festival in Rome, uh, commemorating the first anniversary of the Sandinista Revolution, Ernesto Cardenal, who was a renowned poet and the Minister of Culture uh, with the new Sandinista government, uh, had met with Carmen Vaugh, who was a Chilean gallerist and cultural manager. Um, she had played a very important role in the International Resistance Museum project for Chile, um, and that's where they decided that they would do a similar project for Nicaragua, to support the people of Nicaragua. Vaugh had spear headed the project, um, and about a year later, in 1980, an exhibition took place in Paris, uh, later the same year in Madrid, and the artists that they actually were interested in were Latin American artists, so you see a different focus. Um, they wanted to build a Latin American collection. Most of them that donated were in exile in Europe, and uh, Spanish artists had donated work as well. Again, overlap, similar names that we come across uh, with the Allende Initiative and, of course, with the Palestinian Project. Um, the collection of nearly 300 works was sent to Managua uh, and grew over the years, uh, operating as the Museo del Arte Latin Latinoamericano Contemporaneo de Managua. In 1985, it was renamed the Museo Julio Cortazar um, in honor of the writer because he had played such an important role in making this project happen. Um, after that, the story gets a little bit more complicated. It was operated by an association of artists in the late 80s, um, and then it was expropriated by the government. Um, it was dispersed as a result of disagreements between the government um, because of the government intervention, and so today the fate essentially remains unknown. These works are scattered. Some embassies took them back to kind of take care of them. Uh, others were sold on the black market, so the sort of ending to the story is quite unfortunate, but it remained to be a very difficult time in Nicaragua. It was not an easy place to house these works. Um, so the, the third and uh, like the last story we will share with you, and this also we stay in the museum in, uh, in exile, a very interesting experiment, because it happened in New York, actually, uh, is the artist of the world against apartheid or artist against apartheid. So a French artist, Ernest Pignon Ernest, uh, who was part, who has donated works to Palestine, who's part of these movements, uh, he uh, basically witnessed the, the twinning of his uh, native city, Nice, uh, with Cape Town, and he wanted, and at the time, uh, the apartheid regime was still in full force, so he wanted to uh, uh, fight against that, and so he organized with um, Antonio, Saura. Antonio Saura, a Spanish painter who's actually the brother of a famous filmmaker, Carlos Saura. They decided to mount the same thing, to uh, contact artists, ask them to donate works, put together an exhibition, that was presented as a museum in exile until the fall of apartheid to show the world uh, the support uh, of artists against or for the struggle against apartheid. The first exhibition took place in 1981 at the UN uh, building. Uh, Ernest Pignon, uh, Antonio Saura, and a couple of other people toured this exhibition practically for 10 years. It was, uh, they collected 400 works, but they exhibited 150. 1992, end of apartheid regime, uh, Mandela is released, 1994, elections. And so they contact the ANC and they tell them we have this 
collection, we want to give it back to you, it's yours. And the ANC at the time, it was complicated. It was complicated because the museums had not been yet, there had not been regime change, so to speak. It was in not the museums. desegregated. They were not desegregated. At the same time, the new parliament was going to take place and the entire parliament building in Cape Town was filled with apartheid art. Which is what so, you're seeing here, yeah. what you've been seeing. So basically, this is a video we constructed from images uh, from a photographer, South African photographer called Eric Miller. Mandela told them, let's remove the apartheid art and put this collection in there. The collection was, I mean, so this is interesting, right? That, that the, I mean, there are photographs where the artworks sit on the seats of the parliamentarians. Um, but the collection was not given to the National Museum uh, of Art in South Africa. It was entrusted to a small organization that was, um, that, um, represents the archive, the oral uh, audio photographic archive of the ANC, the struggle, the anti-apartheid struggle of the ANC. And it's called the Mayibuye Center. And in Khosa, Mayibuye means uh, come back home or bring back home. And this center is part of the Western Cape uh, University. And so the works are stored in the university. So basically they were exhibited in 94, then removed, and they've been stored in the University of the Western Cape. They have not yet integrated a museum. Of course, it's a collection that's worth millions. Um, I happen to be in South Africa. I mean, we did all this work uh, in uh, 2014, the 20th anniversary, and they were thinking of bringing them back and putting, exhibiting them on the wall. So, I mean, just to reflect on the fate of these itinerant, superb collections that were uh, collected with love and solidarity and all the right reasons, and, and really, in, 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 not just in spite, but really outside the market. Uh, and only the Salvador Allende collection is a museum and is open to the public and, and it incarnates that, that legacy. So, um, so we end on this note. Actually, we end on this note. So, the, we really, like, this is really important for us to always end with. The number of people we talk to, we feel that we did not, uh, our role was very strange. We were not curators, we're certainly not artists, and we're not writers, because we're not, we're, yeah, we're putting things in the wall and in space. And uh, yet we were dealing with people's borderline secrets or memories. And uh, this, you know, we come back to this notion of responsibility. How do you deal with an archive of trauma, of loss? How do you deal with forgetting? Um, and how do you honor ghosts? Yeah, that's it. Thank, Thank you, you for listening. <laughs> One hour. Thank you so much, Christina Rasha. I think are you willing to take questions? Yeah, sure. Okay, does anybody have a question? Sorry, I was a bit flashy. Ready? Sure. Yeah, yeah.
Thanks for the great talk. I wondered if in all your research did you, with the exception of the Salvador Allende collection, did you encounter any of the artworks or how many of the artworks that were in the original show in Beirut were you able to relocate? So should I start? So what's, what's interesting is when you start talking about something that's been forgotten for many years, these ghosts, whether they're actual ghosts or ghosts of artworks, do appear. Um, so I'll tell you a couple of stories and practically, yes, some works have been found. Um, Josh, will you tell the story of uh, Adnan? <laughs> it's the best story. <laughs> or I'll start, with the, I'll start with it. So uh, in 2008, we had started asking questions about it, not too seriously, but um, I was in Amman and I had asked a, a, a visiting, an Iraqi artist who was visiting, you were part of this exhibition, do you remember it? Um, his first answer was, the Miro is in Amman, I saw it four years ago, or it was in Amman four years ago. So Miro had given a work to the exhibition, it was a print, um, three works, two works, remembered by some people as two, documented as one, we don't know. Um, and so this individual had said, this, the work was in Amman a few years ago. It, it was, you know, someone had bought it. It was on the black market. And so we didn't, you know, we didn't think anything of it. We're not gonna, we're not trying to chase down these artworks. That's a project that other people will do, have done, are working on. But I think by talking about this um, initiative, that has been happening. So fast forward to a few years later, Russia's visiting last year, Amman. Actually. Last year, actually. Uh, yeah, last year I was in Amman and I needed a cheap hotel uh, because Amman is a very expensive city and uh, a filmmaker friend of ours recommended a hotel that his friend had just bought from an Iraqi uh, that had gone bankrupt and he was fixing it. So there were two rooms that were functional and they were, he was willing to give them to me at no money, no, very low cost, yeah? I was staying in a construction site. In the corridor, in the hallway, from the reception to the room, what, do you, what is hanging on the wall? Two Miro lithographs, the same ones. So, yeah. What's the chance that it's not yeah. the one from, we and don't know. They're not reproductions, they're no. real. And so we try, so I be, we become obsessed over like, how did they get here? So our friend, the filmmaker, I mean, he was busy finishing his film, so he didn't really like have time. So he asked the owner, the owner said the Iraqi had just like sold him the hotel and like left for whatever reason. Um, and nobody could f explain why those, specifically those two mirrors were on the wall mm -hmm. next to my room. And uh, we really toyed with the idea of stealing them, actually. We did, we yeah. did, but we didn't. We have to say. Because it would have been very difficult to take it out of our No, mind. but basically what happens when you activate these histories or these stories is that stuff surfaces. Stuff, gossip, rumor, um, uh, ghosts, and, and also, uh, you know, memory. And indeed, uh, so basically what happened is... Uh, um, 1982, the Israeli army was like advancing on Beirut and a lot of the people, a lot of the Palestinians were aware that there were buildings that were gonna be specifically targeted because they were like the media, the, you know, Research or center, the headquarters. Yeah. So the, the works were stored in the information department, ministry, so to speak. 
Uh, and so uh, Muna Saudi called a friend who had a key to, do you have the image? Uh, who had a key to the office, she told him, get a pickup truck, get out, get as many works out as possible, and let's put them in my house, at least they're safer. And that's what he did. And, so and works were safe. Works were safe, but what he remembers, and she remembers as well, is that the building had already been shelled, so there are many works that they could not even take out. Um, so they were able to move some works to her house, um, which was, you know, had a garden, was sort of an open area, and, you know, there's, there's a war going on. It's not an easy place to secure. Any, no place is easy to secure. Yeah, and she left. I mean, in, she, she left. Traveled. She left to, she moved to Jordan from 83 to 93, and other people stayed in her house. And she had moved some, you know, what she could to be safeguarded with families and individuals that she trusted. So yeah. fast forward to, you know, us doing research and uh, one individual that we had spoken with, Nasib Sumi, who is a Palestinian artist, who was kind of her assistant on the project, was, you know, had said, I've been wondering, I want to know what happened to these artworks. He had a commitment to these objects. And so he started asking around, um, kind of doing his own work and trying to find these works. Um, since then, he has sort of written his account of the story of the exhibition and uh, published the, and, and published it um, two years ago, uh, sort of saying what he has found. And so um, there are different kind of groups, Elias uh, Sambar with UNESCO, that are also doing work. Kind of the, the management of these works, once it actually happens, will need to be by a, an official Palestinian organization. Um, yeah, so, that's, so 19 works were found. Yeah, 19 works were found so far. Approximately, one, uh, approximately 200, but there are probably more. And there were more added to the collection in later years, so we don't have a final number. Uh, thank you. I, I'm just wondering how the exhibition was received in Beirut in, uh, when it was first uh, open to the public. Who was visiting it? it? Was there a lot of like external programming that was happening alongside the exhibition? Because uh, you said it was extended longer. So yeah, I'm wondering how it was received. So, um, uh, we, we were really curious, we, re we really wanted to have a sense of uh, audience reception. And it seems to have been uh, visited a great deal. In fact, we have, uh, we just came upon the testimony of, I mean, we found her and, and we didn't expect her to say this, but this Palestinian writer, she said that she loved the works, to be among the works so much that whenever she was uh, passing near, she would just go down, spend a few minutes uh, in that basement with the works and then go about her day. So there, there seems to have been, uh, it was extremely successful, people took pride in it. The press is, uh, I mean, there's no like art criticism of the curation because there's no curation. Really, the works were donated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's maybe one. Uh, the, I mean, maybe you talk about Michel Troche, but basically, uh, the newspapers focused on this idea of recognition. That the fact that there were 200 works by 200 artists, 200 voices, recognizing the right of Palestine to exist, and at that time, that was key. You know. 
They also focused, and there were many interviews with the visiting artists. So as we said, Claude Lazare had visited. There were two Italian artists that had visited. We found out later that there was a, a Japanese artist who visited um, with a translator. And there were, so there were many interviews kind of trying to under, you know, speak to these individuals, trying to understand why they were there, what their thoughts were about, about Beirut, about the Palestinian struggle, um, what their impressions were, and vice versa, asking them about what the art scene was like in Paris at the time. Um, there was one round table that was done in El Safir, a Lebanese Arabic daily, and with a few of the artists, and there was a quote, um, kind of the headline quote was by a fighter um, who said, he had, he had come from Rashidiyeh, from the south, to see the exhibition. And he was there to see and was impressed by the fact that these artists were there supporting the cause. Um, and so he, you know, that was, that changed something for him to recognize that he was fighting a fight that other people recognized. Yeah, um, that he was not a terrorist or barbaric, basically. And actually, there's a, what's very rare, um, and it's quite funny, there actually was a survey done um, the first few days of the exhibition opening by the same artist, Nasir Sumi, asking people what their impressions were, what their favorite works were, um, you know, sometimes surprising, uh, you know, what their favorite works were. Uh, not some, some were more militant works, some were, you know, sort of landscape images. So, uh, so it was, I think it was maybe a week after, and. You can tell I mean, me more about it. We tried very much to visualize the exhibition, to imagine ourselves in that space. And if you don't really, if you're just like a regular Joe and you don't really care about art historical trends, what's interesting is that you see a lot of figurative work mm -hmm. and a lot of abstract work. But the figurative is either like Stalinist social realism or the opposite is figuration, a critical figuration, you know. So it's the, ex the ultra left in Western Europe or it's uh, the official artists in Eastern Europe. And the abstraction which both these guys thought was bourgeois art comes from Morocco and Iraq. And it's interesting these... Which this, was not bourgeois, in fact, it was yeah, doing the same thing that Figuration Pitique was doing. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, we, we try to imagine the art histo historian's conversation, or art historical conversation. We didn't do it at the exhibition in Magba, but we will be presenting the exhibition in Berlin uh, at the House of World Cultures, and that's, that question will be um, an important part of that next iteration. Mm -hmm. First of all, thank you so much. I feel like you talk a lot about haunting and ghosts, and at this point I feel this project is also haunting in the sense that it haunts today, and it's very timely, and um, so thank you. Thank you. My question was, what was the PLO's investment, or why, like, what did you come to find? Why were they so invested in doing something like that? It seems not that it seems out of character, but it seems also very, um, like a different approach to, no? Not at all. It's like, they were so invested in culture. They were they, so invested in Oh culture. my God, artists, if you joined, you had social security, health, uh, they okay. supported artists. To them, it was, they didn't have radio stations or TVs. Yeah, but was they, it? They had people, they wanted to mobilize artists and all kinds like you know this is just one thing yeah the number of exhibitions they did the number of the, they had a publishing house yeah. dance theater 
uh, and everything to do with crafts. Okay. No, no, it, it was at the heart of there. It's interesting. That's and amazing. it was happening in Beirut and traveling. So exhibitions of embroidery were traveling to Russia and to Germany and other places, as well as art, you know, other art exhibitions yeah. and dance and music. And more, more importantly, I mean, those characters, Fatih Abdel Hamid in Japan, he didn't spend time at the prime minister's office or, or the foreign minister's office. He spent time with artists, writers, photographers. This is a grassroots approach. Azadine uh, Qalak, same, same thing. He Mahmoud spent time with Suti. Mahmoud Hamshari. I mean, there's a generation of PLO representatives whose idea of politics is completely different. And they could not imagine political action without artists. This is what's amazing. Yeah. I mean, Claude Lazare remembers this. He recounts a story of how he was making a poster um, and he was drawing a tree and he was sitting, speaking with Azadine and he was drawing a tree made of Kalishnikovs. And Azadine <laughs> says, we don't fight the war with Kalishnikovs. Draw a tree. This is what it is. It is a tree. It is yeah. not Kalishnikovs. You don't win a war with guns. You will win a war by telling the truth, by telling the real story. Yeah, I mean, he said we're men, women, farmers, mm -hmm. uh, and trees. And you, he actually told him, you're like a Paris, uh, you know, militant. militant the, yeah, you know, you exoticize yeah. the Kalashnikov. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, it's on, uh, we have an interview, we have it on, Within on video. the exhibition, yeah. <clears throat> you people should be tired. <laughs> this is really boring <laughs> for you. Um, thank you both for a really captivating uh, presentation. My question is kind of related to the first part of, uh, of uh, what was just being said, the, the specters that you've been working with. Um, and it's more a methodological que a question on the methodology that you followed. Uh, as you were working with ephemeral traces of this event, um, I, you, can, you can sort of already see hints um, in how it might have affected how you think of the traces that your work might be leaving um, and how sort of in the, writing, in the writing of this history you also leave space for you know, additional specters uh, for other people to continue um, but I'm wondering kind of if there are any kind of specific um, things that, that in the design of the exhibition or of the catalog uh, that this, that uh, the object of your study has, has, um, has affected. Well, so, okay, so one thing, part of our practice was trying to return to places where events had happened to see if there was any physical trace. So whether it was the building where Azadine Kalak was assassinated, I sat there and I filmed this building thinking perhaps maybe something would appear. I don't know, we felt it. I mean, we felt we were guided in different ways and I think that was part of where the specters lay. Um, we were not able to, but we had asked someone to go to where the PLO office had been in, in, in Rabat. And the people that showed up in front of the camera was, it was so bizarre. Not, it was like it was we were one being... person. So he went to film um, because he didn't want traffic. So it was either six in the morning or six in the evening. We, he wanted an empty street because the building does a corner. A corner. And, uh, and he put his camera and 
<clears throat> I mean, there's a way, uh, there's a Moroccan dress and a way of wearing the hijab. So, but this girl appears, she has a kufiya wrapped on her head and she's wearing like a black dress. She comes, she looks at the camera and then she walks away. I mean, like, she, I think he saw her and he couldn't possibly stop her uh, because she was too good. But I mean, <laughs> and that was all we got. That that, that's we all we have. It's like this crazy ghost of a person who comes, <laughs> stares at the camera and like walks away, but dressed in, looking like a fidei from the 60s. I mean, oh. and that's not to say even the, the dreams that we have had of people coming to us. And um, so in the exhibition, we didn't show you, I'm, I'll try to show you now very quickly. I'm sorry, I'm going through it. Okay, and the, okay, on the right-hand side, in the center, there's a very large reproduction of an image, um, and that's, and so it's right here, this black, black image. Yeah. So I'll explain what it is, because it would be hard to see even if we showed you just that image. It's a photograph taken by an individual at the exhibition opening in Beirut in 78. The artwork is an artwork by a French artist, Jacques Monnery. The left, the right, left-hand side, you you can't really see, but it's a it's a image, it's a painting of a gun, pointing to what is a mirror. Reflected in that mirror in this photograph is is Adin Kalak. So it's a foreshadowing. When we saw this image, we froze. We didn't say, as Adin Kalak was assassinated yes. on August third, right immediately after the exhibition. Several like a couple yeah, of so months. So somebody caught a photo of something that was going to happen in the future. And, you know, it's weird. And so that, so we sort of reproduced this image with a text uh, by Mahmoud Darwish. Yeah, so Mahmoud Darwish in 1982, again, when the exhibition was destroyed, was under siege in Beirut. And he wrote a beautiful uh, text. Diary, yeah, it was a diary, kind a of diary. diary entries. And so he's, you know, at that time he was like, should I, the big question was, should I stay, should I go? Uh, am I gonna die here? So it was really like very, and he had to move houses all the time and just see people debating whether he should stay, they should stay or leave. Eventually the entire PLO left. But one morning, <laughs> Uh, he wakes up, and Azadin, and Azadin comes to him. He's visited by Azadin. Azadin was dead by then, Four and years they have before. a conversation. And uh, and then Azadin goes, and I think Azadin tells him to stay. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Azadin goes, and uh, and but he writes about being visited by the ghost of Azadin. So we put that text because we lack imagination. We put that text on top of the photograph. But so it seems like ghosts have appeared for others, yeah. at least as a dean's ghost, which I think has yeah. come to us a lot. And yeah, he, he, he was talking to me, I'm sure. And I'm so not ashamed to say it. He was my boyfriend for a while, actually. <laughs> ghost boyfriend. Ghost boyfriend. So there was, a, as in the exhibition, which I'll just show you some images so you have a sense, we did feature kind of one area telling the story of Ezzedine Kalak and really kind of the PLO representatives at that time um, who played a very strong role, as we had mentioned. So, for example, all the archival documents that we surfaced, we didn't want to put them on a table, you know, like a reading room, like do your homework, museum visitors, thank you. So we basically reproduced them as banners. And it, this material is very cheap and very sturdy. We wanted people to touch them. We wanted people to walk through them, kind of like a little, like a forest. And actually, there's a, the audio uh, is very powerful in the exhibition. It's at the first instance a little scary, 
and then if you get into it, you realize that it's directional and becomes intelligible. It's a bit what we felt. We had a cacophony of voices and of stories, and we had to come close to a photograph or screen to... To, uh, to, to decipher what was being said. Aren't we testing the patience of these good Stop people? <laughs> Any more questions? It sounds like your voice is going right. No, no. <laughs> I'm good. I could talk forever. But that's the problem with researchers. They can talk forever <laughs> about was... things that are only interesting to them. <laughs> it was an absolutely fascinating talk. Thank you so much. And I think, Ed, if you can stay around for a drink and ask more questions. Thank you. Rachel.